Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige podcast. Today, boy, you can't get much prestigious. Citizen Kane, 1941 drama that has essentially taken residence as the top film in American history. Uh, it was it, it uh, reigned for 50 years on the sight and sound list. That still reigns on the AFI. I guess it, I guess it got dethroned in in, in favor of uh, Hitchcock's Vertigo hmm. uh, okay. on the sight and sound list. It was written and directed by Orson Welles. He was 24 at the time. It was uh, co-written by Herman Mankiewicz. This writing credit itself, a matter of Hollywood legend. It stars a bunch of people you've probably never heard of. Uh, they were a bunch of old radio voice stars at the time, including Orson Welles himself. One that I thought uh, that I did recognize uh, as a, as a mid- middle-aged Gen Xer, Agnes Moorhead, who plays Samantha's mom on Bewitched in the classics. If you ever saw that hmm. on Nick at Night, you've seen Citizen Kane's mom that gave him up for adoption. Uh, this film... I've seen uh, once when I was like 23, I've talked about how I kind of was making my way through the AFI list. You have to see the number one film. And I've said many times that I admired the film for what it was achieved, achieved at the time. But I found I didn't I didn't like it much. Um, I did. I didn't have much affection for it. Uh, this Christmas, I decided to go back and rewatch some of these older films that I had kind of dismissed as, a, you know, a 20 year old dude. And I watched it over the Christmas break and I had started admiring it and liking it a lot more. Like I found some scenes very funny. I was able to connect with that. And then uh, we I, I forget how we decided to watch this, but I watched it again to prep for it. Felt like, you know what, I'm going to go back and watch Mank, which is a dramatization of the making of. And then for good measure this morning, I had some time to kill. I put on Roger Ebert's commentary for the film. I kind of think I really like this film now, Jim. Oh, uh, you do? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It's it's no longer just admired for its technical brilliance. Like, uh, it's it's I, I like it. Uh, I wonder. This is your first time with Mr. Kane. What did you uh-huh. think? Uh, I, I, I quite like it. I mean, I, it's hard not to, if you, you'd be a real asshole after that introduction, Jim, to say it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. And you're wrong. And here's why. Uh, no, (laughs) not just me, all the Brits, the French, Uh the Spanish and the Americans, they all was wrong for making it. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Throughout the cold war. The one thing we agreed on is this the best movie of all fucking time. (laughs) Look, I don't think it's the best movie of all time, but I've only seen it once. This is my first time watching it. Um, yeah. I I get most of what it's putting down, though I will say if I were 22, if I were 24, if I were the age of the man who made the film uh, when I saw it, I would not have understood it nearly as much. Uh, yeah, for sure. I, it would not have connected with me quite as much. Um, so I'm glad I... Waited, I guess, because I don't know that I would have given it another shot had I watched it when I was in my 20s. And can, can I can like, I also eh, say that whatever. to this your point, I think if you actually if Quentin Tarantino took the script 
and made it today with modern, completely modern contemporary film. I don't know that still a lot of 20 year olds would get it because this film is about a life lived, you know? Right. Yeah. It it takes a a little bit of perspective. Um, uh, I get, I guess like retrospective, uh, to, to be able to understand this movie, which is shocking to me that a man who was 24 could have made this film. Um, because it seems like a much more seems like a, a film that should have come from a much more mature perspective. That said, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think I need to see this movie several times more probably to get everything that it's doing, but I get the gist of it. Um, yeah. And I think the story is compelling though. I will say like, this is not my favorite movie of all time. I mean that honor. And, and I don't even think I, I want to say this is, this is a very similar it's a similar story in tone, I guess, to like what I might consider my favorite movie, The Godfather. Um, you know, it's not it's not the same story, obviously, but it is a story that is told in shades of gray and things. Um, no pun intended with it being black and white, but it it takes a sort of more mature perspective to even understand what's going on uh, yeah. in those two movies. And I think... It probably won't, no matter how many times I see this, I don't think it'll overtake Godfather as being my favorite movie, but it's still quite good. And and for its time, especially, I mean, 1941, I think of the other movies I saw that are around that time. So many of those feel more like stage plays uh, yeah. that were just like, oh, we pointed at a camera at these stage actors and we just let them do what they wanted to do. And that's the movie we got. This feels more like it was constructed to be a movie which is super strange again uh this 24 year old guy who was very enamored with the theater and 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 kind of wanted to come to hollywood and just kind of fuck around there for a little bit to get money to make more theater productions ended up making one of the best movies of all time yeah and they gave this guy complete creative freedom like you yeah, can yeah. do it can be about whatever you want. Uh, you'll have final edits like this unheard of stuff that this guy that was, uh, you know, radio wonder kid. He had he terrified the nation with the War of the Worlds. Uh, he had the stable of like kind of respect of the, you know, radio theater performers that he kind of brought on to Citizen Kane. Um, it's funny you mentioned Godfather because I found myself really comparing that to, you know, that the. Mm-hmm. That was one of the ones that was high up on the AFI that I didn't have to look very hard to figure out why everyone thought it was amazing. Like on first, like the spell it cast on me was immediate. It's first scene. Mm -hmm. I feel like and it's because a lot like you said, it's 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 about a life lived and, you know, like what is important about life and family and love. Mm -hmm. Um, It plays a lot with light and shadow and contrast to like make its visual motifs fit. It's, you know. Uh, thematic motifs and it has the advantage of 30 years of filmmaking between the two but the thing is is like i feel like the godfather where it hits you with that uh you know the 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 cake maker speech right at the beginning you know just it's just like and 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 this inky blackness of the don's you know study citizen kane is like the first 10 15 minutes of it is a bit of a slog yeah it's this bizarre matte painting like gothic 
castle that's like an old hammer horror film. It's some old man with his extreme close up on his mouth, whispering rosebud and shattering a snow globe. And then like a literal RKO serial that tells you about this person that you don't know. It's like it's I, mm-hmm. that still feels like it's in a, it. It belongs to a different part of film because everything after that does, I think, feel pretty fresh and modern. Yeah. Um in like its subject matter and how it treats its subjects and how it characterizes them. Like it, it feels like a press. It feels like it could be shot as a prestige film today, but the first 10 or 15 minutes and the last, like essentially the framing device of this movie. I don't know. I don't know. It's like one of those things Mm. is like, if it, if it were not for Rosebud, would anyone remember this film? But also, sure. is that not goofy enough that like the movie wouldn't be better if it didn't have that in it? Yeah, I guess that's tough, right? Because we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about it <laughs> if if it didn't. Probably right. um, so that's super controversial opinion. But every single time I get into that RKO serial and the film, to me, grinds to a halt and like beats me over the head with this artificiality of it. Well, it feels more like a radio drama, right? Which is what Orson Welles was kind of right. known for at that time. So like. And that would have yeah. been like super contemporary. We'd be like uh-huh. um, seeing a Chiron crawl and being like, oh, my God, what a buy in the future where they don't do that anymore. Or something like this. These these were the way you got news. It would be like watching a, uh-huh. uh, any snippet or any montage of, an, of a news headline type of thing today. But because it is such a, a and the other thing is this is an intensely political film. And for the first half of the movie, I have no fucking clue what to think about its politics. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, I don't know about the Spanish American. I assume it mm-hmm. was, it, I assume it's bad. I assume it led to a lot of colonialist uh, bullshit. Uh, but and, we also have the Panama Canal, Aaron. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, you know, uh, we got the, the. And so I, 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 and what, what, Hearst, you know, uh, if, if, if Citizen Kane is like a, a analog for this, I don't know who these big figures are. It'd be like 75 years now, kids trying to understand Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, like without being explained. Yeah. You, you, you don't you don't bother explaining social media and how all this stuff works together because you why would you? That would be so stupid. But 75 years, like, I really don't understand how the newspapers and the radio stations and the trains and everything you know, I, I don't understand the nuances of that, that 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 clearly adds a lot right. to the material. The the one thing that does help ground me pretty firmly in the, the politics is when they show up, they show an image of boy, I'm going to try not to say Hearst in this of Kane standing next to Hitler and they say, and sometimes they supported them until they didn't or whatever. Right. And the, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And then later uh, refused to support them. So so like th- there's a pretty firm flag they're planting there saying this Kane guy is not a good guy. He's an opportunist, right? He sees yes. a opportunity for money. He does not think about the 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 ethics i guess the morality of what he's doing he simply does it because there's a dollar to be made so uh and then i, th- I think the movie goes on to like say well that's not the entirety of him it's not, not the close, entire but truth like, but yeah. it's fascinating to see how the guy lost his way did he lose his way is it a cautionary tale about 
the ends justifying the means or is it just the mm-hmm. you know you you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain like is what, what that and I, but I think that's fascinating because I think ultimately the film shies away from making a hardcore determination and it uses the yeah. rosebud as the yeah. smoke and mirrors to kind of obfuscate that you know like what did it mean uh, what is it? And even if you're like, oh, I meant his lost, his him bemoaning his lost childhood. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, like it's it's loss of the thing that would have made him a better person. You know, um, it might not have made him any money, but it would have made him. Uh, but would it, or would it be lonely. one more thing that he acquires and then realizes that's not the thing either, and you know, Possibly. tries to find yeah. something else to fill this vague. Is this this yawning need for for love that he can never quite fill? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it represents. Um, yeah, it represents the the love that he lost from his his family at that time, but also yeah, it, it represents the idea that he could never reclaim that. Right, it was truly lost, and that he became the person so. he is because of that. And if he had, if that hadn't happened to him, he probably would have been, like I said, a much better person. Well, and I, I now after I've seen it like four times, I actually yeah. don't even know that it's fair to say what he was looking at, what he was after was love. It felt more like what he wanted was control, which might okay. be another way to say he wanted safety and security, something that yeah, he yeah. never felt as, you know, being essentially sold uh, <laughs> to some uh, fucking investment portfolio manager. Uh, I, I, yeah, it's I, I don't really know. about like how that early loss can twist you up, right? How true, how, true, true. yeah, lo- losing a thing of value at that age in that vulnerable state can send you down a path that you don't even recognize is harmful to you. Yeah, yeah. At least that's what I'm taking away from it. I'm th- there are probably like 50 different interpretations. As a matter of fact, I've read half of them at this point. Sure, uh, sure. So I'm not going to say I have the one truth about this movie, but especially having seen it once, but that's where I I'm was. I'm trying to think that like, it, cause I was like, uh, do you, uh, do I recommend people sit down and watch this movie? I guess the obvious thing is like, if you want to, if you fan, if you fancy yourself as a serious film person, you almost have to, and you probably already have. Um, but like, you know, if you're, if you're younger and you're like, you know, I kind of, I'm, I'm attracted to this film thing. You kind of got to go and and see all the consensus best, or at least it's I think it's good good for you to do that. Um, you might not get its greatness right away. I'd really encourage people to check it out, if especially if you're familiar with the film already. Uh, the entirety of Roger Ebert's commentary is on YouTube, and they don't show the entirety of um, Citizen Kane, but what they do is like because Roger is just like rapid fire, just talking about shot for shot for shot, like all this different stuff and all the different artistry they're using with the things they're suggesting, the themes and trivia from the the making of it and the writing of it. And it's bam, bam, bam. But they use still images of the scenes that he's talking about. Or, you know, sometimes they'll play like a, a, a three or five second moving snippet if he's illustrating, you know, like Orson Welles going from the foreground to the background. Um, you don't have to watch it with the film because they provide enough context. It wouldn't be a great way, first way to see the film, but <laughs> uh-huh. if you wanted to watch the film and then kind of have something on the background later, it's just, oh my God, it really takes your appreciation to the next level. And it's almost like if you're not willing to do a little digging into why this is such a touchstone cinematically, 
Mm-hmm. It's almost. I, I, is it worth just watching once and then never thinking about it again? I don't know. Because yeah. the one thing that, that Roger Ebert said in like the opening seconds of his um, commentary is that Citizen Kane has roughly as many special effect shots as the Star Wars films do. Wow. Like okay. given their runtime. And I was like, I as soon as he said, okay, Roger, let's see it. <laughs> and I'll be damned. Thirty minutes in, I my mouth was shut because there are thirty so... seconds in, I would have believed it. You know. <laughs> well, the thing that's what it, the point is is like Star Wars. Obviously, you can see every fucking effect that's on. You know, right. you can see the Tie Fighters and the lightsabers and all that kind of stuff. Citizen Kane used special effects to just pull off long tracking dolly shots. Like mm. there's this one shot where, you know, they the deep focus. Everybody knows if you know one thing about uh, Citizen Kane is they use this depth of, of focus where stuff in the foreground and the background is in sharp and uh, focus and and the effects mm-hmm. that he used to do that. But to pull some of that off, he also used very deep stages and he had these dolly shot like where the scene where um, Kane's being sold to the banker. And his mom's at the window looking out at her son playing and the camera kind of tracks back, tracks back, tracks back, tracks back. You eventually see a table and it keeps tracking back, tracking back. And you realize that what the fuck? The camera just blew through like a couch Mm -hmm. and a table. And Roger points out that like for like one or two frames, you can see the hat kind of wobble. And that's because they designed this couch and table to break apart into two. And the camera would like dolly through it. And then just as the camera clears it, they snap those two halves together, bang them together. Everyone got together. And then as the camera continued to track back, that table also covered the dolly track. So you don't see it. <laughs> it and makes it's like, me ask why. Why not just raise the camera up six inches, <laughs> go over the table? Because he wanted that fucking shot and that perspective and the uh-huh. the the like this this theme of something diminishing and becoming larger in her eyes and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. You have to listen to Roger Ebert put the spell over you, his, sure, his serious sure. film guy spell. Because I I wouldn't ask something that impertinent of Mr. Roger Ebert. It's impressive. Uh, it's very impressive. But it that's the thing. It's like yeah. it's like shit that you would not even think about. Like here's a simple shot of like some text in the foreground and a piano in the midground, and then Orson Welles fucking around in the the extreme background, and you're like, oh, it's depth of field. Actually, in this shot, the light wasn't bright enough to get even with their fanciest cameras that depth of field. So they shot the foreground. With all the midground and, and the the background and blackness, and expose that, and then they turn off the lights on that, expose the middle ground, and then the background, and then optically composited it to get that shot together. And you would mm. never know it's the special effect. I, I'd stuff yeah. like that, just like the technical skill that went into pulling off all these shots that no one had ever seen before. Like the other thing mm-hmm. I read is like contemporary audiences viscerally did not like the depth of field huh the depth of focus they're like the way we see 60 frames per second as like this looks weird this looks odd i don't know like my my i don't know what to look at i don't it looks artificial it looks stagey it looks what that's how they saw this something that we take for granted in fact when you don't see depth of when when you, when you when you don't see that deep focus it's almost intentionally they're going to draw attention to it. Like they're going to have the something mm-hmm. in the foreground that then is going to dissolve into the background. Right. To kind of reveal. Yeah. Um, 
I just thought that's wild that he come he pioneers this technique and most people that saw it were like, this kind of sucks. This looks fake. Um, <laughs> this doesn't look like a movie. The exact same thing we get our bitch on when, you know, we see the 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 motion blur turned off and yeah. all that other crazy stuff the, on the, modern TVs. Right. The noise removal, the the Yeah, yeah that true motion stuff. Ugh. And this movie might have like never caught on had RKO not done a 10 year re-release where people got mm-hmm. and like, like saw how influential it was technically and how like, you know, modern the filmmaker. And the other thing is, um, speaking of the Hearst of it all, the other thing the 10 year re-release might have done is that Hearst tried his best to make sure this movie was not released and was not seen by anyone. Hmm. So it was it was it little regarded at the time or did like the most powerful media company in the world try to make everyone think it was I hate to tell him Unknowable. I think he failed. I think he failed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Streisand effect. <laughs> he didn't know it cuz yeah, the Streisand effect yeah. wasn't named or invented yet. Babs didn't have her wedding yet, but mm-hmm. but he fell right into the classic Streisand trap uh problem. Geez, do do we have a bunch of non-spoilery stuff we want to talk about this this old ass movie, or should we? Uh, I I think we should get into it. I want to say I just want to point out um, how absurd this job is because today, in the span of a single twenty-four hour window, I have to talk about Citizen Kane, and I have to talk about the pilot of MacGyver. If <laughs> if you just want to see what my life a window into my life, that's it. That's it yeah. right there. I watched back to back. MacGyver and Citizen Kane. So, mm-hmm. and twenty five hours before that, it was zombie pe- or zombie mushroom people. Uh huh. What a what a <laughs> and world. Twenty four hours before that, it was a twenty four hour marathon of Fast and Furious. So, <laughs> good God. Yeah, yeah. We need to have a twenty four hour marathon of of Roger Ebert black and white commentary films to to make up uh-huh. our karmic debt for doing the Fast and Furious franchise. <laughs> We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. And now, back with more Bald Move. So, if you didn't know, Citizen Kane is about one of the world's wealthiest men that at a young age acquires a vast fortune and proceeds to buy up a bunch of newspaper and radio companies. Uh, He styles himself as the little guy's champion. He sees the the rich and the powerful, uh, you know, set policies that are, are are harmful to him, and he wants to strike back against that. Gets involved in politics. Uh, somewhere along the way, it seems like he loses his way and begins to violate his principles. Begins to treat his friends and relationships lightly, and kind of loses himself within his own mythos. Uh, the movie is obsessed with his dying word, Rosebud. And the framing device of the movie is a newspaper man has been sent to write like this definitive obituary of him. And his aim is to discover by interviewing his intimate companions and going over archival 
material to find out what this great man meant when he said the word Rosebud. Um, Because it's kind of like he's got a sophisticated Tarantino-esque structure where you get to see... Uh, you, the, the, this guy's life is told all out of jumble. You know, it's just a, just a, it's just a, it's a weird disconnected uh, series of scenes as retold by his friends, business apart, uh, uh, business associates, lovers. Uh, and you kind of get this kind of composite picture of who this guy was, um, which is neat. And it works better the more I watch it because I'm expecting it and I'm a little bit more familiar with it. And, the weird political shit is I take in stride um, mm. for here on out. We're going to talk spoilers. Where should we start? I, I got to know there. There's something that happens early on that really confused me. Like genuinely, I don't know what's actually happening here. Um, I think they sell their son into child slavery. Yeah. But I, 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 I don't understand the arrangement. There must be some weird 1940s thing you can do where you've, you find out you have gold on your land and so you sell your child to a company so they can mine it i okay yeah. I, I did not understand a damn thing that was happening in that scene so it it was harder to put in context everything that happens after it's weird cuz so he comes it's 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 kind of like listen to Elon Musk talk about his childhood it's like oh, he, Jesus. he like sometimes talks about like he's this relatable guy but then it's like you know and uh, we had the emerald mine of course what a, a what now oh <laughs> yeah, you know the, yeah, the yeah. ruby mine in in South Africa though oh oh uh-huh. you kind of like he's like oh his his mother was poor and he lived this impoverished life and his father was abusive and that's why she had to get him but also she had this gold mine that she inherited mm-hmm. and I'm like what what wait now what like but they made it like that the the no one knew that the gold mine was going to secretly be the fifth most productive gold mine in the whole fucking world like no one had assayed or survey I still five times through. Okay. Don't fully appreciate, but it's something about his father being abusive. Uh huh. Because his father kind of runs him down, and she grabs his shoulders and's like, "And that's why Charlie was sending you away, far away, where he can't fuck with you." And and I want to give you to this banker, and he's going to look at. And so she, all for so, somehow, <laughs> even though I don't think she's dead yet, she passes all of her shit on to this banker. Who is like one of the he's like the Warren Buffett of the of the 19 of the 1890s. And he expertly invests all of the proceeds from the world's fifth largest gold mine into what it becomes the sixth largest fortune in the world when uh Citizen Kane turns what 20, 24? And it's all in a trust for him. It's all in a trust. So he becomes the the owner of all that once he hits whatever age yeah i I get that part what i don't get is the arrangement yes the so do the parents stay and and help mine the gold like (laughs) why have why do they have to send him away why can't they go with him they well i don't know why she doesn't go with him like why doesn't she's like this guy's an abusive jerk i just sure i'm i'm inheriting this mine and whatever comes out of it you manage it but me and the boy we want out I don't know, because also it didn't seem like the man was like excited to buy the boy. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, he probably doesn't it, want it the boy. It wasn't like an Anne of Green Gables situation where like, oh, we're wanting to buy this child to help with our farm work because we're getting old and, and whatnot. You know, we need a child slave. It's this, like he. It, yeah. He 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 turned this kid out like he sent him to the finest boarding schools, finest education, blah, 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 invested his mm-hmm. fortune to where it got to be huge. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I can't explain it either. But OK. I, I don't well, know, good. man. I, like, I, I, I also go back to like there's there's this famous photo of the Great Depression where there's this woman that has like three children on her front porch and it says like strong children for sale and she's like literally trying to sell her children for a better life and like I think that's just a thing people did yeah I'm hoping this is some weird anachronism modern anachronism where like it's just something that people did back then that I shouldn't understand because it yeah. makes no sense today. And the movie doesn't explain it because like nope. in the theater, it's like your grandpa's like nudging his brothers. Like, remember uncle Bobby? We didn't see him no more. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, it's one of those deals. One of those uncle Bobby deals. We didn't have a gold mine. That's right. <laughs> no fucking gold mine for us. We sold <laughs> uncle Bobby. Uh-huh. That was, that was our gold mine. His strong back. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, that was fucked up. So it was a weird start to this movie, but I eventually settled in. It was. Actually, it, it wasn't it, a, a totally weird start. I love the very beginning of this movie, the opening shots of that fence as it pans up. And that's a special effect, right? Because it's like blending oh yeah. one All fence that. to another fence to uh, a gate to the logo to Xanadu in the back. It's all painting a picture of a man who has isolated himself entirely. Right. The no yeah, trespassing sign is the with, very with first Matt thing you see. Painting a picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I really like that for a mood setter. Uh huh. It as much as I don't like I because I kind of the opposite. Like when I especially remember when I first watched this movie, that's the first the, 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 that's the first things you see. And right away, it's like, oh, this is an old movie. Uh, like if you yeah. got away from those matte paintings, and you just began in his bedroom. What well, if you just began like. At any point past the newsreel footage, I think this movie would feel a little bit more modern on the face of it. But oh, totally. um, But as much as I don't like those establishing shots, I can't deny that they work so well as a bookend at the end Mm -hmm. where you see Rosebud being shoved into this this, just hellish inferno and the black smoke rolling out of Xanadu as it like, you know, on its mountain behind the fence, all that stuff like that is such a fucking banger shot sequence of rosebud burning to the, the black smork pulling pouring out of this like some kind of unholy reverse papal mm-hmm. uh nominating type of process <laughs> it's th- those are really amazing shots so it's like i guess but i don't like to i don't like them up front huh okay i liked them uh thematically like the tone that they set for this character even if yeah they they look very old but i imagine at the time they looked quite good I want to talk about his journalist career because like this guy, like to me, I, I often wonder why you don't have more young, rich people doing shit like this. Like I didn't ask for any of this. This is a doodah fucking dumb luck accident that I'm this fucking rich. I'm going to like become like Batman, only a Batman for, I guess, social justice, the lame type of Batman that just, you know, fights for better schools and, I don't know, fluorinated drinking supply and shit like that. Um, 
he sets out to be that guy. Like, I, I've got all this money. I'm going to buy these newspapers and I'm going to fight uh-huh. for the little guy. I'm going to expose. I'm going to muck rake. I'm going to expose the political machines. I'm going to re- I'm going to strike a blow for democracy. Um, But then he he does on the back of what I call reprehensible journalism. Oh, yeah. Like tabloid this, uh, journalism. Yeah. Like if it le- if it bleeds, it leads. And if it's not bleeding, eh, can we cut it? Uh, what the and, fuck went wrong with this was I don't ever see him doing anything I would call being a champion of the people as he claims himself to be I, I mean maybe I didn't read enough of the headlines as they fly past in this movie he's attacking because... the president and there's some there's some legit like political bosses that he's dismantled in his youth he's attacking the president for like not being um not doing enough to, to bust trusts leading up hmm, to the Great okay. Depression. It seems like I want to I, I now that I've seen the movie five times. I think up until he got about 30 years old, mm-hmm. he was a pretty I, I think his his the means he used were questionable, but the end goals he had in mind seemed just. Yeah, I mean, and the means were definitely uh means to an end right like because he's he's trying to gain readership is what he's doing early on he's got this paper right. with twenty five thousand readers it's nothing compared to the circulation of the colonial or whatever the fuck that other uh, that other one is uh-huh. uh twenty five thousand versus five hundred thousand right so what he's right. doing is he's using this tabloid journalism to uh, titillate people to get them to read his paper so that then he can hit them with the more serious stuff and I mean, it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a valid way of, of doing some ultimate good, but it, it, this feels like a bit of that jigsaw puzzle too, right? Like hmm. th- is a jigsaw puzzle of journalism where a few pieces here might uh, look good, but some pieces over there don't look quite as good. And, and what comes of journalism as a whole, when you kind of drag it through the mud for for your ends um does that change it does that change people's relationship with it and if so is it worth it yeah is he ultimately like a rupert murdoch type that wanted to appeal to this underclass of people with like lowbrow entertainment that they would enjoy Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff but ultimately his goal is to remake society in a way that benefits him I mean that um, or seemed clear was, by the end, yeah. What, but 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 was that something? Because that's the thing. It's like there's this great speech where his buddy, his journalist friend, mm-hmm. um, Leland, I think. Yeah, which I I I think you're supposed to understand is kind of like the insert for Mankiewicz, uh, the the the, okay. the co-writer, which we can talk about here in a minute if we want. Mm-hmm. Or he's like, you know, you've you're this champion of the little guy. And you've muckraked this and exposed this machine that, but wait until the little guy bands together and starts organizing labor. You're not going to like that so much when they, you know, instead of having, there's this other great line about that this man never really invests or buys into anything, but he will Uh leave a tip. Like when the little man decides that they're no longer happy with your gratuity and they want something more for themselves and you 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 see them and, as this ungrateful kind of like and it feels like that's exactly what happened. Like, the, yeah, the, the, the line poor people were only good when he could lash them against something that was how to be up his bonnet. 
Well, and when the, he could make them love him, right? Like that's that's a thing. There, there's a line in that speech that really stuck with me, which was what essentially what's going to happen when people start demanding as a right the thing you view as a gift, and, right. and that, that is gave like them that they should be right, grateful for, right? Yeah. And, and they should love you for, and that's ultimately like, and it's said in the movie several times. The only thing that uh, Kane really cares about is that people love him. And and that's only satisfying his own his own ego, his own whatever it is that's driving him to make people love him. You see, I, I oh gosh, I wish that's this is where I wish we'd seen it the exact same amount of times because sure, sure. I'm kind of like into where it's like that was one perspective of him, but I'm now kind of trying to see everything yeah. if through the lens of control. And like, mm. was he using the poor and, un- and undereducated, you know, because that's what he did. That was who he catered to. These like uh, I did enough research to know that like these penny papers, these newspapers that cost a half cent or a penny. They had these lurid headlines that would like, you know, it wasn't about like these high minded politics and stuff. It was more of just like scandal and murder and sure. uh, and disasters, things like that that would like get people interested in it. And then, you know, he essentially this real life huge fiction. Yeah, and he'd use these huge circulations to just make tons of money and then use that money and political capital to turn against, you know, whatever his pet causes were. But like that was his control as long as he had the voice like it's 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 not the love as long as he had the ear of the people and he could turn that to where and to face any direction he wanted. He loved that. But when the people weren't aligned with him and he lost, sure, sure, a.k.a. he lost control suddenly mm-hmm. goes cold and distant and just completely withdraws from from politics. Yeah. Yeah, and you can really see that change in him when he loses his election, right? To Yeah. To that he one He takes dude. his ball and goes home. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's not like, "Oh, I need to retune and I'm going to be back because I still believe in these principles." It was like, you know, you're done uh, you goes, "Am I done with politics or is politics done with me?" He's just like, "Fuck this, I'm out." Mm-hmm. And just completely it seemed like it just completely withdrew from from life and everything. Yeah, everything. So there's the, I, the the other thing that makes it seem like he was genuinely good and his heart grew dark is that brilliant breakfast sequence where the montages oh, of breakfast yeah. he has with his wife and the Ebert really made this point where they start with uh, was it two for one where it's like two people in one shot. Because they're close, they're sitting mm-hmm. on the same side of the table, they're holding hands, they're so in love, they're joking about how passionate he is about his job. And then he goes off and like there's a series of breakfasts where, you know, the fact that you spend so much time at the paper is a little bit more annoying. The fact that you're writing articles that are going after my uncle who happens to be president. Uh, there is, you know, there's this one point where she says something along the lines of... um. I forget what what does she say that that he responds to? Well, then I'm going to tell them what to think. And like he just like becomes more and more arch and their distance gets more and more and more until the final sequence of that is, again, it's a two for one shot. But it's at this huge distance because they're at opposite ends of the table with all this distance. She's reading the competitor to his uh, newspaper. Is she? Okay. That's the other thing. By the end, she's not even reading his lies and bullshit. She's completely gone Uh off the page. I thought that was like telling us telling me that this guy was good and he did have the mm-hmm. love, but it wasn't enough. 
and he had to have the the like this absurd amount of control or like people couldn't even disagree with him, not even his own wife. Um, yeah. And when he realizes that he's no longer got that, he doesn't he doesn't backtrack and say, OK, where did I what mistakes have I made? Where did I go wrong with this? How can I get it back? He doubles down on everything he's been doing and he becomes you know, the, he he's still very successful. Like that's the thing. It never it never affects him monetarily, right? He's always mm. able. Well, they they say that it he does because he goes bankrupt. Palace is in ends. a state of decay and all that. Yeah, stuff. so maybe yeah. it does. He, but he, but it's almost absurd. Like the the links they go to in this movie to show that figurative distance with the literal distance they put on screen. Like, yeah, I, I'm convinced it's comedy. I'm convinced there's a scene in here that is. <laughs> supposed to be comedy when susan is doing all of these jigsaw puzzles and he he's in the same room with her but this room is the size of a football stadium yes. and he's got a fucking throne that he's sitting on a mile away from her and they're shouting uh -huh. across the room at each other he gets up he walks into a fireplace that, <laughs> that like he literally walks into the fireplace it's bigger than it's both so of enormous. our living rooms yeah it, it is it has to be comedy because it's so absurd. And I get the point that they're making, but I, I almost want to laugh out loud at it. What? What? Okay. So what do you think the point is that they're making? Cause I think there's, a, there's a, at least two. Oh, sure. Yeah. There are a bunch. Um, the one that relates to what we were talking about is just this distance that he's, he's developed between himself and anybody else. Right. Yeah. And it reflects yeah. in the physical space that he lives in. Yeah. I mean, and, I and if you needed any evidence, it's the shot of the gate uh, right at the beginning. Yeah. I think the other is just the obscenity of the wealth and opulence yeah. for two people to enjoy. Like you know, Ebert said they, in the they, commentaries, like, look at this. Like, what do you got? You got entire trees burning in this. Like, what is the? And it's for uh -huh. to, to keep one woman warm who's putting a jigsaw puzzle together because she's so fucking bored because she's in this cloistered life. And and think about like the fireplace that. The, this is the fireplace that is needed to heat a room that big, but they're not using the room. They're not using no. the space. They don't need no. the space. The space is a waste. And so yes. is the fire that heats it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's just, just like, and you, it's part of a 50,000 acre compound where it's mm -hmm. built on an artificial mountain and he's looted all of the old European aristocracies for their finest art and their stolen shit. And, and he's never even looks here. at them because they're all crated up still because he's just collecting well, okay. them. So I get, that is, I think, a critique of Hearst. It's based entirely. But like, what the... F oh, okay. Wh what is going on with that conspicuous consumption? But for what, like, why? Why was he doing that? He's obviously trying to fill a hole in himself. And it's, I mean, it all comes down to Rosebud, right? Like what you all think comes Rosebud is. It's like I feel like I'm falling into my succession trap where I just want to be screaming at this guy. It's like, get therapy. But they, I don't think they invented it yet. So he was just kind of like stuck. <laughs> he was stuck with this fire child. It's like, so fair enough. If you were born before yeah. <laughs> the 20th century, you could be a rich asshole because literally no one had told anyone to be better. Uh -huh. uh, but like, yeah, like early on where... Um, they, they say something about uh, about the the ultimate like key to understanding Kane, and and everybody's like, "What is this rosebud? What is this rosebud? We got to find out what rosebud is." And somebody says, "It'll probably turn out to be a very simple thing," yeah. which which is like a lampshade on the the thing in the end. But like, right? It isn't. I I don't think it's simple. 
I, I think it's it is a minor thing. It is like a on the face of it, it's very simple. But I think if you dig even a little bit past that surface, it becomes much more interesting and deep. I was just thinking, like, on the face of it, I'm a fabulously rich person that I claim to be speaking for the common man, and I'm just buying up all the statues, and I'm not even looking at it. It's just mm-hmm. like I'm just, like, pissing away money on a scale that couldn't even be comprehended by the pharaohs of old. What is the mental process going on there? Uh, I don't know. It's like, is shouldn't there be a way to, like... Is, 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 shouldn't there be a way for society to stop something like that? Like, look at this guy. He's building oh, a fucking mountain and he's got the Venus de Milo and he's keeping to himself. Like, I, can we just like have an intervention here? Because yeah, we know that's, that's not going to make him happy. No, it's is ruining no the fucking world. Let's just let's mm-hmm. just stop it. You know, like I mean, obviously uh, that's what needs to happen. We need we need to yeah make sure that people can't become that wealthy. Like what? What the is the good? What is the good served by people becoming that wealthy? There is. There this is, is no why it, it's funny because like I will watch in Mank, which is like a fictionalized version of the making of Citizen Kane, and the backdrop of that, like the fact that the Hearst got involved in, um, I think it's the governor race, like Upton Sinclair, the big you know muckraking uh, journalist that wrote uh, what was it in the jungle. Uh, but it's it's like there's a couple things. He outraged people by because of like all the shit that was in like hot dogs and like food safety standards, but also um, like how backbreaking the, you know, ununionized labor was and how they took advantage of, of the common man and the laborer. He was running as this progressive guy, like the socialist guy. And Hearst used all of his like money and power and film connections to like essentially destroy him uh, mm-hmm. politically. Um, but there's this part in Mank where they they had this Upton Sinclair giving a speech about, you know, it's a classic line. It's like you can either have all these wealth inequalities. You can either deal with it like civilly and democratically or you can deal with it through some kind of violent revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I was thinking that to say it's like when you see this guy's like the amount of wealth that he amassed and not like. To open up a like, because like it would be one thing if he did that. He he built Xanadu and like on weekends he fucked <laughs> off and went up the coast and let like the public come in and see like like it's a free museum for anyone that wants to come in like right no hmm. admission because I want poor people to enjoy it. But he literally grabbed the stuff and as far as I can tell, him and his wife enjoyed it. And I used the word enjoy lightly right. because it seemed like they were miserable about everything. And most of it is still created up, like I said. I, I don't know. I, this, to me, is an addiction. This this is someone doing heroin on a scale that affects the entire globe. Yeah. There ought to be... There, there is. There is something we can do about it. And I think, What's, like, this it, is it's one irresponsible. Thing. It gives... To, to disallow people from becoming this wealthy is actually healthier for them because it forces them to refocus and say, hey, I am addicted to this thing. Why? And maybe they can get help. Maybe they can get treatment because it is an addiction. Well, this is one thing that I when I was going around doing my three right turns political podcast and I was doing all the the, the rounds to all the different conservative and libertarian podcasts and stuff. And I always ask this question about, like, why is it that we will limit men and women's political power? You can only be president two times. You can only mm-hmm. be you know, you, you can only serve terms this limit. You can only like we have all kind of restrictions. We limit your military power. You can't buy fully automatic weapons. You can't get a nuclear bomb. You can't buy grenade launchers. You can't own a fucking aircraft carrier. We mm-hmm. limit 
all types of people's free, uh, powers. As far as I can tell, there is absolutely no limit to an, uh, the amount of economic power a person can have. Yeah. There's not like so. this is the megaton megaton bomb level of wealth that you're just not allowed because it fucking disrupts society. It, it makes it to where like, you know, the same reason you can't have a private fucking aircraft carrier. You know, mm-hmm. like we don't want that shit rolling up in international waters and sinking competitors and shit. Right. Uh, we have to have a monopoly on. I don't understand why no one ever came up with a good answer of why that was. It seems like it does lead to, at the very least, market inefficiencies. This concentration (laughs) of fucking liquid Uh wealth is not being utilized as efficiently as if it were over the course of millions of people. You know, two people running a private museum is not as beneficial. So it's like, I I, I don't know. I never got it 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 cloaks the damage that is actually being done to human beings in financial terms in some right. scholastic argument but, but economists not... will take you seriously if you phrase it that way right 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 <laughs> but what we're talking about is somebody who i mean we look people who are addicted to alcohol for instance we put them in jail when they start doing harm you can't go yeah. drive your car down the street crash into people kill them and then say well sorry uh and then go free that's not how we works in this society we are seeing the equivalent of a bunch of drunk drivers killing people yeah. on the streets and doing nothing nothing it's wild because that's that reminds me of another thing I read in a it's a book about um, card counting of all things. But this guy had this like other parallel story about the addiction of gambling. And he talks mm-hmm. about like that's like one of the worst things to be addicted because if you're addicted to cocaine, there's a finite amount of cocaine you can push through your body before you just die. Sure. And that's the worst that can happen to you. You know, if you're addicted to alcohol, there's a finite amount of alcohol that you can put in your system at one point, which implies there's a finite amount of money. The money you can spend is fine. When it comes to money, there's no, there's no limit to how much of casino will take from you in sure. like one go. There's mm-hmm. nothing that will stop you from giving your kids college funds away, the mortgage of your house. Like you can literally give everything in a way that's scarier than any other type of addiction that you can have. And that's like, I don't know, there's something related about the fact that um, maybe it's because the, the Capitalism all just revolves around the idea of property and private property is so sacrosanct and limiting what someone can do with their own <laughs> yeah. private property. Like it just is. It just it just like that's communism. The hammer you can see the hammer and sickle is right there. But like <laughs> sure. Also, sometimes we do limit people's freedom because it makes sense in for in, in a sense of wider society. So I don't I don't know how we'll ever because that's the thing. It's like you watch a movie like this. This sad, this this sad state of affairs that we find ourselves in today, and apparently back in the turn of the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, it just seems like it's always going to repeat as the generation before it passes on. It's like, oh, we actually need a little bit more checks and balances in this area. We forget that, and they rip yeah. it all up, and then we get into the robber baron phase, and then we're like, oh fuck yeah, that's why we can't let this happen. I don't know, maybe it's just constant yin yang yo yo. Though we'll have to be doomed to repeat. Yeah, and all this, you know, is in service of like, what is what is wrong? What is the hole that he's trying to fill? And can it actually be filled by a bunch of statues and palaces and whatever financial riches right. he can he can gain? The answer is obviously no. Obviously, because I think thing- if you look around at people who have accumulated that kind of wealth, 
do those people seem like they are happy and healthy? <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, it'd be one thing if these people were like paragons of happiness. Like they're just ridiculously happy and well adjusted. Like right. every billionaire in this like planet. All of them like, were Tom Hanks, right? <laughs> yeah, like or Mr. Rogers, and they're just like uh-huh, good folks. Uh-huh. And like you just like you just like, oh man, I can see why they are so wealthy. They're just like better than us. But they're not. They're often miserable human beings, but like we're told that they're happy. So we right. all aspire to that. And then when we get there, we find out that oh fuck. This isn't the way, but like it's and, and by know, aspiring to that, we also say that the devil we, ever played. yeah, we, we have a chance to become them too. Right. No. So we don't want to limit right. their, their ability to accumulate that because it, it would suck it if someone did that. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It effectively limits our ability to ever become them. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that is a, a big nasty trick that's been played. Um, and it was played on. On, boy, I almost said Hearst. It was played on Kane here too, right? He thinks that all this stuff is going to make him happy, uh, that this power he can wield and all this adoration from people is going to make him happy, and he is anything but by the end of this movie. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. And now, back with more Bald Move. You know, it's funny because, like, um, he does at this point in the movie take the one of the bald move rules, which is if someone tries to blackmail you, you instantly tell uh-huh. them, go fuck themselves, bring it. I don't yeah. give a shit. Release the evidence. I don't care. Release the evidence. That happens to to Kane in this movie and it destroys him. I still say that's better. He destroys himself I, after that, but mm. you're right. It is a turning point for him. Sure. Um, I don't know. Do you think he can undis? Because like again, this is in the four. I do feel like this fifty-four year old uh, with the twenty-year-old uh, mistress is cheating on his wife. I do feel like that wouldn't play very well. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know. That might be that might be hard to come back from. Um, totally. But uh, I don't know. The other core is maybe not live live your life in such a way that you can't be blackmailed. You know, like maybe not have <laughs> There's maybe not option. have the 19 year old mistress while you're trying to win a fucking governorship in, in California. So um, so let me ask you this. Was she his mistress before yes. his wife left him? Because I, I don't think I they got, ever physically yeah. did anything. Uh, I don't think they did anything sexual together. There was an implied. Really? Well, there, there was definitely an implied like desire to on Kane's part, because mm. when they first go to her apartment he closes the door and to me that was him that that was saying he's gonna make a move on her and oh, then she 100%. reopens it and yeah. and then from there on i felt like it was he was fascinated with her kind of from a distance and i did not get that they were actually uh lovers before before mm. they got married and she says as much Ah, boy. Okay, so I'm trying to decide whether I thought all that stuff was bullshit because, like, I I guess I didn't buy that this guy would furnish her because she had a place that she stayed. She had clothes. We saw what that looked Mm -hmm. like before he became her benefactor. He's providing her this lush, this lavish spread with this fancy furniture. She's dressing to the nines now. Like, Mm -hmm. I think they're like, yeah, that was the first night. She's not... uh, She's not easy, but no, I, I don't know. They describe her as as mistress and everything. I, I took it that they were totally banging. This was he was caught red handed. Okay. Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. It is a weird because what attracted the, the seems like the only thing that attracted him to her 
or her to him, him to her was that she didn't know that he was famous and that she didn't find him repulsive on the face of him. It's such a weird, weird life raft to cling to. And they frame it in the film. Second chance that he's, that he's looking, that he's staring at here. Um, So this, I just got this on my fourth time watching it. The fact that he was standing there covered in mud and she, they just like as an after effect, he's <laughs> like, well, it's like I was at, on my way to this warehouse where they've sent all my mothers of personal effects after she died. And I was going to go through and kind of like have a, a reverie, you know, just kind of walk through and have memories. And they 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 frame. So that scene is kind of framed as a turning point for him where yeah. if Rosebud is the hole that he had, the self-discovery that he needed to make, Rosebud is actually at this facility because yeah. we see it being cleaned out at the end of the film rosebud is there mm-hmm. he could have gone there and reflected on life and figured out what the hell was going on and and fixed it instead he found this new project something new that he could control and extract love from and it feels mm. like they connect that as a as a potentially fatal flaw that is it, is it that there was this one person who had not yet learned to love him and he wanted even, to correct that that awful flaw in the world. Well, the fact that like everyone that knew him had a feeling about him a certain way, whether it was towards love or hate. In that moment, it was kind of 50 50. But here's a person that, you know, she's young enough. She's never even heard of him. She hasn't paid attention to politics. She hasn't mm-hmm. read the newspaper, but she kind of likes him just as a person. Hmm. But it's also like the more I watch it, the more sad it is because it's yeah. like it's just superficial. It's like you meet someone at a bar and you have a great conversation with them and you decide, ah, this is the person that I need to build my life around because it must mean I'm not a scumbag. It's like a deeply pathological way to look at the beginning of a relationship. Sure. And I look at it from her side too. What she says later about it is maybe I should have never sung for him. Oh my uh, God. And I, that is, that is a deeply sad line because if you remember the only reason she was singing is because her parents expected her to and wanted yes. her to and so her singing to this man in this one scene irrevocably changed the course of her life and his life for the negative um much worse yeah and and she was not following her passion she was following the rules as expected of her by her parents and society and it's is incredibly sad it's so wild because like this this ghastly opera career part of the movie <laughs> is like harder and harder to watch every single time because you see it like yeah. she's this carefree girl that has figured out a way to make her way in the city. And this guy waltzes in her life and she makes this offhand comment about I, I used to like singing, but my mom wanted me to go in the opera, but I really don't have that kind of voice. I like singing, but my mom really was pushing me. And he hears that as like, oh, you want to be an opera star and I'm going to make that fucking happen. And that's mm-hmm. not what she said. And then this arc ends in her, uh, in a suicide attempt. Yeah. And then that's not even the worst part of her life. The worst part of her life is like the rest of it, where she's trapped in this fucking castle playing, spending her youth playing, um, jigsaw puzzles. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's, it's fucking, that whole yeah that opera sequence is 
is oh, rough a because she's listening to this opera and watching this bad opera they make you watch it and listen to it for minutes at a time um yeah and, and it's, it's clear rough. like i'm not an opera fan but it's clear to me from <laughs> yeah. what's going on that this is not working and, and it's clear to kane that's that's the thing Boy, it's clear to her that's the it's worst clear to part. her yeah and she has to do it she's the one taking the the emotional damage right from this when oh, getting up that, in front of these people every night in a new city, being praised for it in Kane's papers, and then knowing that the audience is clapping out of politeness, um, out of out, not even politeness to her, right? It's more like, well, we have to clap because this is Kane's wife. Yeah. And if yeah. we don't clap, Kane will be mad at us or something. And, and he's, he's like standing up man, like a one man dude Standing that scene like four, is like so it's good been... like orson welles is amazing in that moment like he's great throughout the whole movie but this scene in particular talk about really that, yeah. struck me where he is seething he's like this is fucking terrible this opera is god awful he he knows it right he listens to it yeah. he can hear and a woman next to him says oh dreadful or whatever uh, delightfully dreadful or right, whatever and right. he hears that and he's just sitting there seething, knowing, God, this sucks, but I'm going to make it not suck. I, through sheer force of will, I will force people to like this woman. Because I can make and, them and, believe and thereby what, like they, me, what I want right? them to believe. Yes, but I'm bending some... truth. I'm bending reality to my own will. And him standing up and forcefully clapping as everybody else is clapping dies out. It's it, insane. It's a brilliant moment. It's, it's funny because so it's like a huge meme. It's such a reaction meme, this forced like clapping right, and stuff. But right. like it's I've like seen completely it divorced. Times. It's completely divorced from how it feels when you're watching the film. It's totally. maniacal. Yeah. Um, riddle me this, Batman. Hmm. Why does he go? So his best friend is writing review, uh, trying to write an honest review of how ghastly like they're like uh, such a weird piecemeal way to cover this. But apparently they covered these things as like they had the music guy talk about the music. The drama Weird. guy talk about the act. Did you notice that? Uh-huh. Like they're like the society person talking about the red carpet of it all. And yeah. the, the like they, they had like all these different things and they're like all glowing. But the drama guy who is this guy's lifelong friend is getting himself drunk because he's trying to write an honest review of how bad his wife is. And Orson. Well, not Orson Welles. Um, Kane, Charlie, mm-hmm. Charlie Kane. Um, shows up, sees this, laughs to himself, fires the guy, and then writes a very cruel, scathing review of his wife's performance that mm. she can't even fucking believe when she reads it the next day, thinking it's his friend that wrote it. He wrote it. Yeah. What the fuck, man? I love what that. What the fuck? That is so deeply fucked up. Uh-huh. Who does that? I mean... Charlie fucking Kane. So so the explanation from Leland is he did it to prove that he was still an honest person, right? That's horseshit, Which, though. It's got to be. I, I don't know why. It, it, it's obviously a spite review. Um, yes. He, he's writing it to spite his friend. But if it, I, I guess I, my question would be if it's not to prove his his better nature, then what is it? Because I don't see another explanation. It's just such a it's just an insane thing to be like, I'm going to prove how principled I am uh-huh. by by carving my wife up like a Christmas goose. Like you think you can be sure. honest and brutal and, and a dispassionate review. Wait till you see 
I don't know. It's such a fucking Machiavellian power play. Oh, yeah. It can be that, but it could also and be exactly what he described. And then his friend completely destroys him by returning the, the blood money check ripped up, wrapped yep. inside the declaration of the principles that this guy wrote down once upon a time. Oh, my God. Yeah. And the way Kane is, he's ripping it up. It's like, what is that, honey? He goes, it's a, what does he say? It's an antique or a relic or something. Yeah. Uh and then then she tries to like it's like like, well, she's like, well, this obviously didn't work and I can stop. He's like, no, I'm not going to make myself a laughing stock. You're going to continue with your singing. And it becomes like this whole sequence becomes crazy and crazier every time I watch it, because that whole montage, there's got to be a dozen where she is forced and you see the smile plastered on her face. You see the frustration of the she's not getting better. The only thing that's changing is the Inquirer now is rigidly saying what a star she is. Mm -hmm. There's also this subtle thing where they keep spelling her name differently (laughs) in different headlines, sometimes with the Z. And like Ebert says that he thinks that's to imply the lack of seriousness of the organ is like, that's something that's like this is his guy's wife on a fucking headline Mm -hmm. and they can't get her spelling right. Like there's some kind of like... it's and it gets like the the more and I the watch lack this film, of control that that he himself has over this process at this point, right? Like, yeah, it's all these papers across the country. It's Detroit, it's Chicago, it's a million cities. And yeah, if they're spelling his wife's name wrong, he's not even he doesn't take care because he can yeah. see that and say, no, we're fixing it. But yeah, I, and it's in contrast I, to to that first paper he puts out where he changes the 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 typesetting, like. Six times. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And delays going to press with it because he's changing it and changing it, and getting it just he wants to perfect. be just, just so. Yeah. And yeah. now he can't even monitor it to see that his wife's name is spelled correctly. Yeah. And it gets the scene. Gets, there's a, so much more detail. Like when he first meets her and you, you figure, you know, you see that he's fixating this opera thing, even though as she's saying and everything that she says that this is not my dream. Well, it's your dream now. And then, like, when they're riding away from their wedding and they're like, oh, your wife's going to have this opera career. It's like, I've heard that you're even going to build an opera house for her. And he's like, oh, I won't come to that. But then you see that, like, the lessons, but and they don't ever say, they don't ever come back and say, but, like, you then see the headline that he has built the opera because she sucks so bad that literally mm-hmm. no one will hire her. So he's going to build a fucking opera house for her to perform in. And it's just like, oh, for fuck's sake. And it's just like... It just gets it just gets more and more gross the more you know about it. Just like how many mm-hmm. flashing red lights are there. And it's a great line when she finally says, like, you know, that like Char nothing happened to Charlie that wasn't his idea, and she laughs except for the time that I left him, which kicks mm-hmm. off the fantastic sequence of her eventually leaving. And it's almost like that Michael Corleone moment yeah. where he thinks he's got the ace in the sleeve and he just doesn't he doesn't have any kind of hand at all. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Her walking out on him and you know, like this, like you can't, do, that. that's that when he says, you can't do this to me. She's like, Oh, this is something that's happening to you now. Not me. And yep. she's like, well, watch me do this impossible thing. I, it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great sequence. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Why does Leland go to Chicago? Is he just trying to get away from the corruptive influence of Kane or, does he have yeah. other reasons? Does he just hate Kane or is he worried that Kane That's is what bringing he says. him down too? Does, doesn't he say he's like he's like or someone says it about him like he lo- he loathed them from that point on? I, I do think oh, that like maybe. 
Because I think also Leland believed in what they were doing. Exactly, yeah. And like staying in that paper in that town would just be a constant reminder. It'd be like living in the house, you know, that you had a, I don't know. It's like living in a mausoleum, you know, like this is a a monument to this terrible relationship that went wrong. And I got to get the fuck out of there. That's how I. Yeah, It, it makes sense. And especially, you know, when you look at the review he's writing, it's an honest review. Um, it's not the one that Kane is paying for. Um, so, yeah. We'll be right back with more Bald Move after this brief pause. And now, back with more Bald Move. The Butler sequence. <laughs> I think this is some of the funniest stuff in the movie. Uh, Orson Welles in old man makeup and supposedly he's got like a like in this scene he's got a back brace on so he looks stiff and old he somehow contrived to break his ankle and during this scene where he just destroys this his wife's bedroom apartment he significantly gashes his hand like Leonardo DiCaprio and Django and Jane I think it's so fucking Boris Karloff Frankenstein him going through yeah. this stiff old man just wrecking shop and it just goes on and on and on it always makes me laugh I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be feeling <laughs> no. but I think it's just it's almost like a Saturday Night Live skit sure sure I could see it like when he gets through the sh- it's like when it's it's the one that thing always breaks me is where he gets through the like he's just like flipped over every table he's mm-hmm. ripped down every sheet uh, he's pulled the the canopy off the bed. He's he's kicked. The, he's done all this. And he goes to this like bookshelf. And he starts grabbing spines and throwing every book onto the uh. floor until like it's just oh, my God, it's so fucking petty, just so full of this peak. And it goes on for a while, too. There were several oh, times when I think, so oh, funny. he's he's worn himself out here. He's done. And then it'll cut to another section of the room that he hasn't destroyed. And he'll destroy that. Yeah. And there's also this shot where, you know, he has the I think it's this that um, he's got the snow globe that reminds him of, you know, uh, his youth and Rosebud. And he walks out, he walks past this uh, mirror that's arranged where it's like two mirrors opposed. And it's like Mm -hmm. the mini It's supposed to suggest the many facets you've gotten of the many different views of Kane that you've had throughout this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's so good and then it dissolves back into the butler's face he's told this whole story <laughs> uh-huh. because the framing of this the butler said yeah I'll, t- I'll give you all this inside dish for a thousand dollars and and the scene begins with the reporter going like well that ain't worth a thousand bucks fuck <laughs> off basically and the butler's like wait no I can tell you I just think that's so funny you go through this searing montage of his man's life falling apart this butler who is the only guy in the room that heard the rosebud giving uh-huh. his inside take on it and the guy's like fuck you for that story ain't worth a thousand bucks i'm reneging i'm out of here like, <laughs> yeah but i mean i'm with him it's not worth a thousand bucks he didn't actually Isn't tell him what it? rosebud is uh, i he guess just that's said, true i heard him say rosebud one time and then he destroyed his wife's room after she left him like what what does that clue you into you know i don't know rosebud thing is a uh, kind of meth it's kind of meth there's or there's meh, one meh, shot of meth. It's kind of meth. It's kind of meth. meth. Uh, there, there's one shot in this movie that I don't like. Oh, um, th- that I really feel is out of place. And and maybe I'm just not understanding it properly. Maybe Roger Ebert could explain it to me. 
I really hate this scene transition with the bird where oh the the parrot. And, and when i say that you know it right you you yeah. immediately go uh-huh. oh yeah that that scene um what's with that i don't know it's also got a technical mistake because whatever process they used to put that superimposed on an image made the iris of the bird transparent yeah. so it's like a green screen effect yeah, it's, uh, I, it's I, no, really uh, weird. And, and Ebert called attention to the technical error and kind of like it's a distinctive shot. And oh, it's um, distinctive, distinctly I think bad. Isn't it trying to? I think it's trying to. It's, it's underlining the jungleness of wherever they're at. Sure, I, there are other ways to do it. This was jarring. This was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very in your face. I mean, it's the thing that's overlaid across the entire screen for a second, yeah. and it's a screeching sound effect when it happens. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really like the bad. opposite of, like of, of a subliminal message. It's just liminal. It's just out there in your face. Super it's liminal. Yeah. Super liminal. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, man, there's so much else you could talk about. Um, I, I, I had a big head of a ball of fire to come in and talk about the the connections to the Mank series, which is the Gary right. Oldman, David Fincher. Um, biopic about um, Herman Mankiewicz, the the Wicks, the guy who co-wrote um, Citizen Kane. But mm-hmm. I did some research last night, and I this so the, the so there's the this, the this is based on the theory that um, Citizen Kane was almost entirely written by Mankiewicz, uh, and that he had signed this deal essentially to ghostwrite this film or to story doctor it for Orson Welles. And Orson Welles was going to give him all this material and he was going to kind of punch it up a little bit due to dialogue. And it was understood. It was in con- the contract. He was not going to get a writing credit for it. And like this um, back in 1971, this uh, movie critic, uh, esteemed professional critic did some research and did some interviews. And she wrote this, kind of groundbreaking article in I forget like Hollywood Report or something like that. It's called Raising Kane. And it was kind of like this oral history of the making of Citizen Kane. And she made the point, she she had the hypothesis that Herman Mankiewicz actually wrote most of Citizen Kane with some minor contributions from Orson Welles. And Orson Welles had tried to screw him out of the credit and that he fought and scratched and and got got his credit for like his greatest his magnum opus, you know? Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, that's like bullshit. Like there is solid evidence that Orson Welles wrote huge swaths of this film, including like some of the more famous uh, that he is the one that came up with this structure where it was going to be a bunch of like disconnected details of his life that, you know, that, that you're going to get the context of the newsreel and then all these different stories. And it's kind of like Rashomon type, you know, uh, kaleidoscope view of this guy um, and that. Mankiewicz was kind of like this has been drunk and bullied this new director and RKO studios into getting a credit that he wasn't due Hmm. contractually or any. And I'm like, man, now I don't know what to think. Yeah, I didn't. So the Wikipedia article on this movie is a goddamn novel. Uh, yes it's enormous i did not get to read that far into the the writing of this film Uh uh-huh so i don't know that i have anything to contribute to that conversation but i i I, the parts i did read it seemed like at least orson welles brought a bunch of notes to the process um yeah and 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 i 
do think yeah, to make a copious this, amount of notes. And then the, he definitely had this idea to write a, no, a a novel or a movie about his relationship with Hearst because, you know, he was kind of an intimate of the family and worked his way into the inner circle and then was cast out because of political differences and the fact that, yeah, it did seem like this guy was a miserable drunk. Like, this guy was super hmm. funny as fuck and, like, had a way with words, but also just was a wreck of a human being and uh, it drank himself to early grave. He didn't, didn't live much past hmm. 10 years after making this movie. I think he died at 54 of like renal failure. Wow. So I don't know. Um, you know, cause there's all, all kinds of legends about this being Hearst and not being Hearst and being a composite mm-hmm. of Hearst. The rosebud was actually kind of a lewd reference to his mistress's genitalia. Um, <laughs> Apparently that's something that like uh, Wells apologized for late in his life that he this Marion, I forget her name, but the the mistress, the 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 19, 20 year old mistress that the real life Hearst did go on to marry who had this successful, uh, co- especially a comedy star. She was like a talent. Yeah. She actually had a lot of talent and Hearst didn't so much make her as kind of like, you know, shun a little bit of a spotlight on her. Marion Davies. Thank you. Um, that something that Wells kind of regretted is that in the pop as as Citizen Kane grew larger and larger in public's imagination, people took a lot of that her stuff as fact, and it kind mm. of fucked with her career later on. That she was seen as like this manufactured thing that never was very good, and yeah, she she ended up uh, having a pretty unhappy, ended up dying very early of like jaw cancer or some shit. Um, hmm. but yeah, apparently he felt bad about that, but sure. everything I've read says that this is supposed to be intended to be a criticism of Hearst's life. And the only, the only reason Orson Welles always kept a little bit of distance between that and, you know, what he said in the press, which is, oh, it's a pastiche of this guy, this guy, that is that, that he was really afraid of getting his ass sued because I mean, yeah did you see how much the hearst family uh the hearst uh, estate the hearst machine tried to destroy orson wells in this movie no apparently like for over 10 years uh the inquirer which is it'd be like if uh nbc universal decided that robert eggers just didn't exist okay they were never going to talk uh-huh. about his movies they were never going to talk about him and what he was working on next uh, all their newspapers were never going to show the showtimes for the movies that he was making. Like, it, and, and that's even <laughs> underselling it because Hearst's newspaper and radio organization was, pr- man, I, I don't, I don't know. Was it because like when I go back and I see the 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 news reel, because I almost said that like you got to understand for his time he like had a much larger section of media than anyone today. I don't know that's true. Because in that like radio serial thing, it's like, uh, you know, Citizen Kane, he had at his height 36, ra- 36 newspapers, 12 radio stations. Like, that's not even a fucking state for Clear Channel or oh, yeah, iHeart, yeah. right? Like, like, we have media conglomerates that mm-hmm. there's no fucking way that these guys and a robber baron, yellow journalist, were more powerful than like a Rupert Murdoch or. Right. Whoever the fuck is running Warner now, Warner Disco Max, like there's no they they're controlling shit on a planetary yeah, scale. I, I mean, I, I do want to like push back on on that a little bit because the internet changed that the democratization of publication. I yeah. think 
really fucking changed that dynamic and turned it on its head. And we're seeing like the death throes mm. of traditional media right now. You still have the big kind of mega networks that can push information or agenda out to massive amounts of people. But yeah, I, I mean, I think, look, Elon Musk is a lunatic and an idiot in a lot of ways. I don't think he's wrong in his like notion that Twitter or something very much like it is the new town square. And if he can own that, like it, it, it's yeah, extremely yeah. valuable to him, right? Whether, whether he is able to do his lunacy and get attention and have people adore him or not, just the fact that he owns that mechanism is extremely powerful. Yeah. No, I tend to agree. It is funny because like you, you we talk about the unique challenge of social media, but like this also is kind of an interesting tale about that because, you know, yellow journalism in its day was a social media of its time. The idea sure. that like people had gotten this idea that like, well, if you were wealthy enough to own a newspaper and you were buying ink by the barrel, then you had a like a legitimacy that if you if it was in print, it was true. Mm -hmm. Right. Because why would anyone take the time to like you know, commit uh, libel at such a huge scale. Yeah, the um, risk and then the, the money involved, the effort involved, yeah, all of it. But that's so, such a wretchedly naive. So like people like Hearst took advantage right. of that and be like, well, well, yeah, we'll print and whatever we print is true. So we'll shape social mm -hmm. media is like, and then, then it, it came across as like, because there were serious journalists at the time. You see that there was a serious journalist trying to run the Inquirer aghast at what Hearst was going, well, uh, Kane charlie kane was going to do to his newspaper right yeah um apparently sometime between that and like edward murrow and walter cronkite we had discovered the need for serious journalism again and having <laughs> certain serious journal so like mm -hmm. we bent it and we and like i think that this maybe the social media stuff is just another attempt at like people forgetting that like because that's all it's like oh this you know the new journalism and anyone can be a journalist you just have a twitter in your county you get a journalist but it's like well yeah people mm -hmm. can just print outrageous lies and now we get ai generated bullshit to go on top of it but like surely we can find our way again to like oh i remember why we had journalistic standards i remember why mm -hmm. we had these principles and laws ah yeah we we tore off the safety guardrails and we ran ran the car off the road time to put the guardrails back in place right that's where this is going to lead i would certainly hope so um yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's a big question mark, but it is like it is the new way that people get their news in in a lot of regards. I don't think there are a lot of people. I, I mean, this is manifest, right? This is obvious. Uh, there aren't a lot no. of people reading things like The New York Times, The Guardian, uh, serious journalistic outfits. They're going uh, toward the penny papers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah is they're Twitter. trending towards. I get all of my news on Twitter. It comes through my or timeline TikTok. from from somebody who like heard it from somebody else who heard it from somebody else who might have read it in a serious journal, but probably didn't. Um, and that's all taken as fact. So, yeah, I I don't know where this ends up. I just know that that is the new kind of way that the people are trending to get their information. Yeah. And, and the, the new the I guess the new citizen canes the new charles canes will be the people who own those outlets uh, i think it's harder to shape that to your own will but not impossible 
Yeah, I just wonder if we'll like ever come up with the you know re 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 put those I guess safety rails yeah. or how does that even look in what does that even look like in a uh in, in a social media society? the golden check mark it's the platinum check mark Aaron yeah yeah you one might day, have a blue check mark or a gold check mark they'll mm. invent the check mark Suspect. so shiny uh-huh. that that <laughs> it will instantly be respected you can only post truth yes like the, the mere the mere fact of posting cringe. Mm-hmm. tarnishes your check mark to where it's no longer a shiny actually that's not that's actually pretty fun i actually that's think actually, we might okay, have yeah, something let's do it let's you do get it. a pristine check mark uh-huh. and if you we fact check your ass and you have lied it gets a scuff it gets a scuff uh-huh. so run your mouth as reckless as you want and get your check mark as scuffed as you want it to your be tarnished but. ass check mark yeah ah, yeah you're gonna come over here spouting that with your busted ass check mark no 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 yeah it's the idea of a reputation because like i've that's right. long been a problem right. in society is like people say you know no one holds anyone in account like you know you can yep. come back 20 years from now be as wrong anyway back to citizen kane <laughs> yeah. i do want to talk about orson wells okay uh, because we talked about figure right like the treasure of the Sierra Madre we talked about how Mm. the acting performances like you can see some of them like being stagey some of it being like really rapid fire kind of like I think for the most part most of the big performances in Citizen Kane are like feels of a of a newer generation yeah um and I think that when I think of Orson Welles being 24 years old had never made a movie before Mm-hmm. You know, like there's this famous quote where like uh, RKO's executives were like, you know, here's a special effects department. Here's the soundstage and here's where we compose. And at the end of it, he's like, I don't this is the finest train set a little boy could ever ask for. Like you could mm-hmm. just he's just like, oh, my fucking God, I'm going to do so much cool shit. It's staggering that he's also at the center of this doing fairly convincing makeup going from a 24 year old man to a 74 year old man who's on death's door and like kind of goes all in between. And that shit is rock solid throughout. Like it's a very convincing performance that he's giving a person living his entire life over two hours. Yeah. It's remarkable to me. I mean, he's a stage actor uh, before this, right? He's involved in stage production. I thought he's just all radio. Like he just did radio performances. Oh, I thought I thought he was doing theater before this because it was one of the reasons he didn't want to go to Hollywood is he didn't view it as serious as like the theater. But I think that theater was literally a radio stage theater, you know. Oh, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Hmm. all those like the 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 theater that he worked with, most of them appeared in this, but it wasn't a theater like uh, a stage player. It's like a, a radio theater. Oh, is a wild concept. I, yeah, I don't understand that. What does that mean? A radio theater? Well, it's like a, did, like, a, like a drive-in without a screen? Yeah, like you'd have the Lone Ranger and Little Orphan Annie and Murder Mysteries. And, you know, there would be people doing dramatic readings and narrators. didn't and, have radios in their home, I guess? No, you had radio. That was the thing. They broadcast that. It just it was it was a movie without it was just the sound of of a movie. The this sound. Is, this is this is uh, but, this but is you, frying but you were, gym synapses. It is. So so you. It's a term theater. So when what you say you theater, what you mean is sitting at home listening to your radio. I would just yes. call that a radio program. I would not call that theater. <laughs> but but the, the theater place, implies the congregation the, of people. The the outfit that was getting together every week and doing mm-hmm. this recording 
would you say they didn't have the get they didn't know to call them studios yet, Jim. Apparently they called them theaters. The place where they recorded the thing was yeah, called. They all got the, these actors would all get together and oh, they'd man. talk in the microphones yeah. and there was guys off stage doing the creaky cracky, making the lightning sounds and the gun sounds and the horse, you know, banging the coconuts together and all that stuff. That was a that's a theater. Huh. Okay. I mean, fair enough. Wild. Am All right. I well, then I, I I fundamentally misunderstood what he was involved in before this because obviously I knew about the the War of the World stuff, right? Like I I knew about that radio play, that radio drama. I've never heard it referred to as theater. No, yeah, I uh, actually you're closer to being right than I am. Apparently, the Mercury Mercury Theater produced theatrical presentations, radio programs, and motion pictures. They're the triple threat. Hmm. Okay. I'm very confused. Anyway, yeah, it's remarkable that all these these people came together as kind of first time uh, film performers. A hundred percent. Just they, nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. They had never made movies before, and especially they made Wells. I, I, the I think best like, movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And in some ways, you know, I, I was reading about how liberating that was for both him and the people who were in the Hollywood industry around him already oh, yeah, probably and just like their their cinematographer in, for instance uh which i guess was probably just called the camera operator or something at that time um he was thrilled he he actually requested he went to wells and said i i, I want to be on this film i want to work with you here and he did that because he knew that wells as a first-time filmmaker would allow him to try things and do things that no established filmmaker in hollywood would let him do because they were seen as, well, that's that's ridiculous. We can't do that. It's not how it's done or it's never been done. Uh, so let's not do it. Wells came in and he was requesting a whole bunch of stuff that he was just ignorant of the process mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And the camera guy was thrilled. He was like, fuck, yeah, let's try it, you know, and and produce these effect shots like you're talking about that are by the time miraculous. Yeah. There's like these absurd wonners in this show, like the time um, where they're, you know, give, you know, they're selling the child into <laughs> into indentured servitude. The ma- the camera starts with the mother at the window and it keeps pulling back and she comes to the front door, comes out. They do this whole exchange and like it's like a minute and a half long of a single tracking shot. Um, the other thing is like they a lot of uh, cameras were locked down on these soundstage where you could never see the floor or ceiling because you would see mm-hmm. the tracks on the floor or you'd see the lights and the microphones and the can the Citizen Kane. They did a lot of work where they would the, there would not be a true ceiling, but they would stretch this cloth called muslin uh, mm. that was transparent to light and sound. And then they would have like this this crisscross of what looked like crown molding and whatnot to give it this convincing opinion of the ceiling, but just shots where you could see a ceiling were Mm -hmm. like revolutionary because no one would ever think to shoot from that low heroic angle because like you would see all the stupid shit that you don't want to see. They were able Uh to hide the mics up there. They were able to catch the sound very well, but it looks like a, you know, like when you, when you, they, they said it's like when you put light on this sheet of fabric, it looks like plaster. Um, yeah, I've been reading things like that. I've recently got the, the book about the making of, um, or the creation of ILM. And a lot of this is in spirit, very similar. It's like, you got a bunch of people together who just were very passionate about making this thing. No, I I didn't see the Disney documentary series. That's, that's on my list. I'm reading a book. 
but yeah, I, I do want to see that. Um, but yeah, it, the spirit feels the same. You got a whole bunch of people who are just excited to make this thing excited to experiment and to do new not, things, not have yeah. the restrictions that the typical, you know, industry would have. And they, they end up revolutionizing everything, changing the way that people think about film. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, to the extent that people hated it, it took them 10 years to like, Oh, actually this is better. And sure, everyone's doing sure. it now. Yeah. It was no but, star Wars in, in that regard, but yeah. Yeah. But it also opened up a lot of storytelling techniques because like you think it's like, okay, well, it's shooting from a bottom angle, dude. There's a there's like this is the the Ebert commentary. It was so cool is there's a lot of things like um, that. I forget the guy was a Thurston, the guy who took control over his finances and raised him like there's Burns. a scene in the movie. Oh, Thatcher. Yeah. Thatcher. Just seen a movie where he's saying Merry Christmas to the little boy. uh, Kane. And Ebert points it out that not only is he in this extremely tall stage uh, that has a huge ceiling, but they actually have the actor standing on a box. So the camera from below, you got this little boy perspective Mm -hmm. of this giant of a man who's like wishing a Merry Christmas. And then it cuts to a new scene of the much older man. Now he's sitting down and the camera is from Orson Welles, grown adult height, looking down at him. And he says, Happy New Year. And 20 years have just passed uh-huh. and the camera goes over and now Orson Welles is a grown man and you couldn't do that shot if you had the camera locked so that you could never see the ceiling or floors because right. it just wouldn't work. So like, you know, it's like, well, who gives a shit about the, these angles uh, mm-hmm. open up entirely new visual storytelling possibilities Yeah, where it's like. You don't even get that as consciously that like the but something that the, the part of the thing that sells you on the boy becoming the man and the passage of time is that perspective switch. Mm-hmm. And I just I just shit like that is why I think these watching these old movies is really cool because you get these things. It's like, you know, like you said, just playing with like shot placement and cameras and who's in what screen. This stuff was like super advanced at the time and, and stuff super, we just take for granted exactly yeah it's super easy to just say well that's how films are made now right and and when you're forced to sit down and think about the time period that this was made in and the revolutionary nature of these shots and techniques th- then you start to think about the meaning of those shots and techniques well why did they use this particular shot here yeah um and and, and that's I, I don't know. I mean, that is like one of the reasons I love that balcony clapping scene so much is because the juxtaposition of what's happening on screen and the triumphant sort of nature of it and the camera angle itself telling you that this is a low moment for this character, right? Mm-hmm. You've got all these people applauding the thing that he's done for his wife here. And yet, you know, it's just, it's really just messing with him in that moment. It's not. It's not something that he's proud of or happy about. It's and it's all down to the shot, the composition of it. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out Citizen Kane pretty good. Who knew? Who knew? (laughs) If only someone had told me to take this movie seriously. And, you know, Uh, every every single day, Michael Bay is out there using shots exactly (laughs) like this. But you never go. Oh, how brilliant. Look at the juxtaposition yeah. of the, the shot versus the meaning of the scene. Yeah. Because it's done every single day. It's done look every day by every director. Nick Cage from his knees, making him look uh-huh. heroic. How uh-huh. did he do that without showing the ceilings, Jim? I don't know. I don't <laughs> right. know. Where did he learn to do that? Who taught him? Yep. 
Orson fucking Wells, it turns out, at the age of 24. I, that's the thing. I'm, I'm just looking at this. This movie, this, this production, and going, how does a 24-year-old do this? It's incredible. I think Orson Welles also kind of like, it's something attracting this project is like uh, Mankiewicz, like uh, Hearst himself. They had kind of, they were not the, oh, my parents have, you know, blue links on, on Wikipedia. Like he kind of came from <laughs> nothing too. Uh-huh. So it's like this one. I don't know. It's like one of those things. It's like it's kind of like the internet. You know, you get all these young people. Like you know, how did this, uh, these twenty year olds fucking found Google? Well, they you know, like the, he was born at the right time. Like right there to transition sure. from radio to film. Got this sweetheart deal from this. You know, the the, the littlest of the five major picture. That is, you know, it's just trying to seem like deliberately kind of like go after this auteur type of approach. Um, yeah. Kind of like uh, Paramount, you know, back in the the offer days, you know, the Gulf. Mm-hmm. What was the Gulf War Gulf Warner Pictures or Gulf Western? Gulf Western. That's what it was. The 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 owners of Paramount. This is all the yeah. offer Godfather crap from Paramount mm-hmm. Plus. Uh, do we have anything else we want to talk about Citizen Kane? I don't think so. I need to see it again think- though. Yeah, it's it's another one. And I'm now like that's like I'm yeah, I kind of want to go and, and, and keep reading and because the stuff that I've seen so far is fascinating. And I watched uh, Ebert's commentary like one point five X speed to fit it in before the podcast. I kind of want to go mm-hmm. and cue it up on a second screen with the film and, and really get into it because and yeah. now I've got a real I've always heard about these legendary Roger Ebert commentaries and I've never heard one. I can't believe I'm as big a fan. I've never. I now I'm I'm hungry. I want to hunt down all these fucking Criterion classic commentaries and because they are they are really in kind of their own way a lot. They remind me a lot of the feeling I got from watching the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes material. Just like, mm-hmm. holy fuck, look how they did this. It's so cool. Um, but yeah. about feeling that way about a 75 year old film rather than a hobbit fantasy film well okay i guess that'll do it for citizen kane next week we're gonna be talking about brian de palma's untouchables i remember really liking this film Mm -hmm. but then i watched it like a couple years ago and i remember thinking like i don't get as much out of this as i used to oh no was i just having a bad day does the movie not hold up i can't i i I can't defend that though because the movie seems so awesome just thinking about it uh uh-huh. yeah yeah we'll we'll be back for one of the five i i think this is uncontroversial one of one of it in kevin costner's finest roles sure he barely butchers an accent mm-hmm. we'll be back next week with that as a prestige film until then i'm aaron and i'm jim see ya